There are expressions in our language that we use every day, though their origins have long been forgotten. For example, hang up the phone. I mean, when was the last time you actually hung up a phone? You sound like a broken record. What's a record, let alone a broken one? Roll up the window. How does that work in a push-button world? Or maybe the term clockwise. Digital displays are even making that terminology obsolete. And there are other such expressions. Running out of steam. Hold your horses. Put through the ringer. These phrases linger, but the concepts behind them that were once a part of our lives are no longer recognized. And there's another word that tragically I would have to add to this same category. It is the term holiness. For in the Christian church, the phrase living a holy life, though it was once a common expression, today very few Christians even know what the word holy means. And yet holiness is Paul's theme here at the end of 2 Corinthians 6 as we begin chapter 7. Verse 1 tells us, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word here translated holy means special to God. You know, often we think of holiness and being holy as an intrinsic quality. What's holy is better or purer than what's not. But that's really an incorrect use of the word. In the Old Testament, the bowls and the utensils used in the temple were considered holy. Not because they were made from unique metals or because of a specific design. Their construction could have been the same as any other vessel, but what made them special was their dedication to the service of the Lord. It was their consecration, not their composition, that made them holy. Once there was a mom who thought her household rules would carry more weight if they were written down like Old Testament laws. Surely her kids would obey biblical-sounding laws. Here's a sampling of her rules. Of the beasts of the field and of the fish of the sea, And of all foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. (laughs) Of the hoofed animals broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cloven hoofed animals, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn and of the wheat and of the oats, And of all the cereals that are of bright color, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of frozen dessert and of all frozen after-meal treats, you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups, you may drink, but not in the living room. Neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, of any food or beverage, there you may not eat, neither may you drink. But if you are sick and are lying down, 
and watching something. Then may you eat in the living room. Pretty clever mom, huh? Well, obviously, except for a few very special occasions, that living room was off limits to her kids. I'm sure this mom's living room was constructed of the same materials as every other room in the house, but she had dedicated the living room as a special room for special functions. And therefore, what was allowable in other rooms was not allowable in the living room. And this is how we should understand the concept of holiness. Your life is God's living room. You are the place where God continues His work and lives out His life. And God is very, very picky about what happens in His living room. A Christian is special to God. Not because you're intrinsically better than anyone else, but you're God's child. Your life and all that you are should be dedicated to Him. Thus, anything that defaces the beauty or purity of your life, that tarnishes its witness, should become off limits. Well, next, Paul talks about holiness in a way that he carries out his ministry in terms of how he treats other people. He says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Boy, can all churches say with Paul, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted or unduly influenced anyone. We've cheated no one. Paul ministered for God with a clear conscience. Though some of the Corinthians had been critical of him, Paul had been honest and straightforward with them. No hidden agendas here. And now Paul asks that they return the favor. He believes that he's earned their respect. He says to them in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. See, the church in Corinth doubted Paul, and it broke his heart, and yet he still had a heart for them. He was willing to die for them or live for them, he says. He says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Even as the Corinthians had criticized Paul, he had bragged on them. They were a powerful church. They were filled with God's Spirit. Paul continues in verse 4. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. And it's a bit sobering here. To eavesdrop in on the Apostle Paul and hear him say, inside were fears. Apparently, at times, even a courageous apostle gets fearful. You know, it's been said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to trust God in the midst of our fears. He says, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And I love the title that Paul here ascribes to God. He calls him God who comforts the downcast. You know this word downcast was used by the shepherds. 
whenever a plump, fat sheep would fall on its back and couldn't right itself on its own, it was referred to as downcast. Apparently, Paul was so distressed. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. He needed the help of his friend Titus to get back up again. You know, often God uses the encouragement of a friend to get us back on our feet, doesn't he? Well, God comforted Paul by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now Paul was in Macedonia when Titus brought news of the Corinthians' reaction to his first letter, what we call 1 Corinthians. Though Paul had rebuked them for their divisiveness and their carnality, many of the Corinthians had repented and they had obeyed his instructions. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. Oh boy. When I was a naughty kid, my dad would lay me over his knee and he would pull off his belt and he would whip my little rear end until it hurt. And he would always say to me, Sandy, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. And not once did I believe him. Not once. There's no way this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. I never believed him until I became a parent. That's right. And now I know it's true. And guess what I would say to my kids whenever I pull my belt off to spank them? Son, this is going to hurt. Never daughter. Son, she was perfect, but those three boys. Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You know, it's an agonizing ordeal to discipline someone we love. And this is how Paul felt when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody likes it when their sin gets exposed. A good rebuke hurts. Often it causes the recipient to get mad. Paul knew the risk he was taking by reprimanding his friends, but he did it anyway. He wasn't worried about himself. He didn't need to be liked. Paul's only interest was the glory of God and the health of the church. Hebrews 12 tells us that a parent who doesn't discipline their child really doesn't love that child. Paul loved the Corinthians enough to hold them accountable for their sin. He was willing to risk his friendship with them to help salvage their fellowship with God. You know, real friends do that. Love is willing to take those risks. Paul continues, he says, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. The Corinthians had been sad for a season, but after the sting of the spanking subsided, the discipline worked. Paul's truth and love had led them to repentance. And then he says in verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance 
leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice here he tells us there are two types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Reminds me of the Catholic man who was tormented by this haunting secret. He worked at a lumber yard. One day he went to confession and he admitted to the priest that he'd been stealing wood. The priest asked him, he said, well, how much have you stolen? He said, well, I've stolen enough to build me a house, my son a house, my two daughters' houses, and a small cottage up at the lake. We enjoy it all the time. Well, the priest was shocked. He said, my son, this is a serious offense. I'll have to think of a severe penance. Have you ever thought of doing a retreat? The fellow got excited. He says, no, but if you can get me the plans, I can get you the lumber. That's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is being sorry you got caught. It's being sorry that you'll be punished. It tries to escape the consequences of your sin and the retribution. It produces crocodile tears, but no real desire to change. Worldly sorrow is a self-centered sorrow. It's a self-pitying sadness, a woe is me kind of sorrow. Whereas godly sorrow is God-directed and God-honoring. You're sorry that you broke the heart of God, that you thumbed your nose in His authority, that you offended Him and that you want to repair the relationship that you've spoiled. Godly sorrow accepts the consequences of my actions. It doesn't buck or resent proper punishment. It seeks not only forgiveness, but the opportunity and the power to change. Godly sorrow yields real repentance. Paul continues, he says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. Notice what godly sorrow produces. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. You know, if you want to discern if a person is truly repentant, just use this checklist. Is there a diligence to do the right thing? Is there a desire to rebuild their reputation? Is there now a hatred of sin and a fear of God? And a willingness to do whatever it takes to overcome in the future. And a passion for God and a longing to make things right with others. Once it was a Sunday school teacher. She was teaching the kids and she said, who can tell me what you have to do to gain God's forgiveness? One little boy answered, well, first you got to sin. Sadly, I know some adults with the same attitude. They sin to be forgiven or they're forgiven so they can go out and sin again. There's no true repentance. No desire to break the cycle. Either they're enjoying sin or they're crying for forgiveness. But there's no godly sorrow. Don't you really want to overcome what's dragging you down? Man, I do. Understand, real repentance, without real repentance, there can be no real forgiveness. This is what Esau discovered. Hebrews 12 verse 17 tells us of Esau. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. A flood of tears 
was no substitute for a repentant heart. Remember also Judas, Matthew 27 verse 3 tells us, Then Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Oh, Judas was sorry that he had betrayed Jesus. But he was not, his sorrow was not such that it would cause him to face up to what he had done and take responsibility. Rather than seek God's forgiveness and restoration, Judas threw the money down and he sulked off in his sorrow. And he tried to avoid the consequences of what he had done by committing suicide. We're told in verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now recall the original incident in Corinth that had provoked a church discipline. There was a man and his father's wife, his stepmom, who were shacking up. This was blatant immorality. And the church had taken pride in their tolerance. And Paul had had to tell them, no way. Either these people need to repent or they need to be kicked out of the fellowship. See, a church body can no more tolerate unrepentant sin than can the human body tolerate cancer. You leave it alone. You don't cut it out. You ignore it. And it will destroy you. And the church had faithfully dealt with this situation. Certainly, Paul had confronted the couple out of love for them. But here he says, love for them was not his only motivation. He loved the church. And he made an example of this couple to warn the church of the dangers of compromise. He was looking out for the church's best interests. Which is often the real purpose behind church discipline. He says, therefore... We have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Corinthians had lived up to Paul's confidence in them by showing godly sorrow. Well, chapter 8. You know, once there was an infant. She was playing on a carpet. She picked up this quarter and she put it in her mouth and accidentally swallowed the quarter. Well, the mother saw what had happened. She went hysterical. She started screaming to her husband in the other room. Honey, quick, call 911. Our baby just swallowed a quarter. The husband responded. He said, forget 911. Call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. (laughs) And in the next two chapters, Pastor Paul's intention is to get money out of the Corinthians. He's going to teach them about giving. You see, famine had hit Judea. The region had fallen on hard times, and believers in Jerusalem were hungry and hurting. And Paul saw this need as an opportunity to bridge the gap between Jewish and Gentile believers. The Jerusalem church had been the first church to send out missionaries to reach Gentiles. 
And Paul knows that now the Gentile churches of the Mediterranean world can return the favor by showing their love for the Jews through their monetary support. Paul had already collected an offering in Macedonia, and he uses it as an example to inspire the Corinthians. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, first, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't call their monetary offering a gift. Rather, he calls it a grace. Receive God's spiritual favors, and you'll want to do something tangible in response. And giving becomes the answer. Reminds me of the family that attended church. This church happened to take an offering just before they took communion every week. The dad would give his kids a dime or a quarter maybe to put in the collection plate as it passed by. Well, one Sunday, the youngest boy who was new to the adult service, he wanted to receive communion. When his mom, when he went to, he went to take communion, when his mom whispered to him, said, son, sit back down, you're not ready for communion. With a loud voice, the boy protested, why not? I just paid for it. And sadly, that's how many adult Christians think it works. Hey, God's salvation can't be purchased by you. It can't be earned by some offering you give. It's free. It was paid for by Jesus. If your offering is an attempt to buy God's pardon or his blessing or his favor, then just put your dirty money back in your wallet. God doesn't need it. We don't give to get. We give to show our gratitude and our love for God. Giving is a response. God has been so good to us, our giving to him is our way of saying thanks. And apparently, the Macedonian churches... Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were all grateful for God's grace. So much so that even in tough times, they had been generous. Notice here the Greek phrase in verse 2 translated deep poverty. It literally means rock bottom destitution. I mean dirt dirt poor. As poor as dirt. I mean it's a graphic term. It was used for a beggar with nothing going for him, with no hope of improving his lot. Apparently, this was the financial straits of the Macedonians. And yet, though they had very little, they still gave generously. It just goes to show, if you wait until you can afford to tithe to start doing it, you'll never start. As a matter of fact, statistics show that poor people are proportionately more generous than rich people. Did you know this? In 2001, a study was done by a group called Independent Sector that showed that folks making under $25,000 a year gave away 4.2% of their income to charity, while those making $75,000 a year gave just 2.7%. It proves our willingness to give isn't as much about what's in our bank account as it is what's in our heart. 
the balance in your bank account might affect the amount you give, but it should never affect your willingness to give or the regularity of your giving. You remember the widow's mite. Well, Jesus was so impressed. But what impressed Jesus wasn't the size of the woman's offering. It was just a mite. What impressed him was the amount that was left over afterwards. For she gave all that she had. She didn't just tip God. A lot of people are tipping God. This lady gave sacrificially. And this is what impressed Paul about the Macedonians. He says in verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. The Macedonians weren't pressured or badgered into giving. They asked Paul if they could give. You know, it always blesses me when somebody approaches us and asks, hey, you guys don't pass the offering plate here. How do I give an offering here to this church? I always like that. I think we're doing it right when people have to ask how they can give their offering. He says, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now notice this. Notice the priorities of the Macedonians. Before they gave their money to God, they first gave themselves. You know, too many folks try to buy God off with a few bucks. You know, they do enough to pacify their conscience. Or they give to God to sort of get Him off their back and leave them alone. Well, I gave my offering. Here's the problem. God could care less about your money until you give him your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. He wants you, friend, not your money. And yet on the flip side, how can you say you've given all to God if you're not willing to give God a portion of your money? Say a tithe or 10%. You know, in medieval times, When armies were converted to Christianity, many of the soldiers were baptized holding their right hand out of the water. You know, they went back in, but they kept their right hand out of the water. It was a way of saying that they were giving everything to the Lord except their sword hand. Just in case they needed to grab their sword again and kill off a couple of their enemies. Today, it seems to me that there are people getting baptized holding their wallet out of the water. Oh, they're willing to give to Jesus every area of their lives except their finances. Well, verse 6 tells us, So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Paul had commissioned Titus to collect the offering there in Corinth. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. The church at Corinth abounded in the use of spiritual gifts. They spoke in tongues, prophesied, spoke with words of wisdom. But Paul says, so what if you're greedy and you're stingy? You betrayed the nature of Christ. You know, on occasion, you'll find a Christian who excuses away his responsibility to give financially by saying, well, that's just not my gift. 
Paul would disagree. He believed that giving was everyone's gift. It's our response to God's grace. We're all called upon by God to open up our hearts and our wallets to Him. Verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He's mentioned the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians. But if that's not a good enough example for them, he has another. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Hey, if you don't want to follow the Macedonians' example, what about Jesus? What about his example? Our Lord made himself materially poor so that we could be spiritually rich. Talk about giving. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. Now, you see, Christianity and tenants are a lot alike in that a good serve requires a good follow-through. Good intentions are not enough. Coulda, woulda, shoulda doesn't cut it. You see, a year earlier, the Corinthians had started taking up this offering for the Jews in Judea, but they had never finished. Reminds me of the pastor's son. You know, these pastor's sons. And every Sunday, he would go to church. And he would hear hear church words, religious words, words like justification and sanctification and glorification and reconciliation and all these Asians. One day his teacher in school asked him, he said, who can define the word procrastination? The pastor's son answered, he said, well, I'm not sure what it means, but our church sure believes in it. God wants us to obey, not just talk about it, not just plan on doing it. He wants us to just do it. We need to be obedient, not an obedient, not a procrastinating church. He says in verse 12, for there is first a willing mind. It is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. In other words, don't get hung up on the amount of your giving or how much you have. What's important is a willing mind, sincerity. Give regularly and sacrificially, and God will be pleased with whatever percentage or amount that turns out to be. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality. And this is the genius behind the simple tithe or the tenth. This is a principle taught throughout the Bible. It was before the law. Abraham began the tithe, and it was practiced throughout. With the tithe, you all give a different amount, but the same percentage. Everybody learns the joys of giving, not just a few wealthy benefactors. And to God, a meager tithe is just as significant as a massive tithe. Paul isn't expecting any of the Corinthians to give it all. He's collecting an offering from every Gentile church. 
See, here's God's wisdom here in action. If everybody gives their share, then giving isn't a burden on anybody. And so here's the question. Are you giving your share? Once it was an old country preacher, he needed to boost the offering one week. And so he stood up before the collection plate was passed, and he announced to his congregation, he said, before we pass the plate, I just want to ask the person who stole Brother Harvey's chickens not to give their offering today. God doesn't want a thief's money. Well, needless to say, for the first time in months, everybody in the church chipped in that morning (laughs) and gave their offering. And this is God's financial plan. Everybody chips in. God is after inequality in our giving. That now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who had gathered little had no lack. Paul quotes Exodus 16 verse 18. Sometimes I give more than you. Sometimes you give more than me. But if we all give our share, then it all balances out. And then verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And we're not really sure who this brother was. Perhaps it was Luke. Maybe it was Timothy. He says, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show you your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. Now, whoever this praiseworthy brother happened to be, it was his job to accompany the offering to Jerusalem with Paul. This was a security precaution. You know, if something happened along the way, if the money was lost or it had gotten stolen or maybe even sunk in a shipwreck, Paul didn't want anyone accusing him of absconding with the funds. And so Paul made himself accountable. He brought along this trustworthy brother. I like what Bible commentator Charles Hodge says about this. It was not enough for the apostle to do right. He recognized the importance of appearing right. We are bound to act in such a way That not only God, who sees the heart and knows all things, may approve of our conduct, but also that men may be constrained to recognize our integrity. I like that. See, Paul employed procedures that safeguarded his integrity. That's what we've done here at Calvary Chapel in our handling of the offering. And then verse 23, if anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner, And fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of of our boasting on your behalf. And then chapter 9. 
Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, that is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast to you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Now Paul was really shrewd about this. See, in the previous chapter, he used the generosity of the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians. But when he was in Macedonia, he used the Corinthians' good intentions as an example to them. He says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. Paul wants to avoid an embarrassing situation and a poor witness. He doesn't want to come to Corinth from Macedonia and there be no offering after having bragged about him and their willingness to give an offering all this time. He'd been talking up the church at Corinth. Now he's concerned about the Corinthians letting him down. And he's also concerned about the attitude behind their giving. That it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Please understand this. Paul and us here at Calvary Chapel have never asked anybody to give with a grudge. If after all that God has done for you, if you have to force yourself to write that check, just keep your money. Give because you want to, not because you have to. He says in verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's saying your offering is like a seed. Plant or invest in God's work, and it will yield spiritual rewards. You know, in reality, none of us can give anything to God. God already owns everything we have. Our giving is our opportunity to invest and participate in God's purposes. It's been said of money, you can't, can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And you can. You can lay up for yourself treasure in heaven by giving to God's work here on earth. And verse 6 adds an important principle. The degree to which you give will be the degree to which you'll get. He says, sow sparingly and you'll reap sparingly. In other words, give a little and you'll get a little. But sow bountifully and you'll reap bountifully. That means give a lot. And you'll get a lot. Don't forget, you reap in proportion to what you sow. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Can we say it together? God loves a cheerful giver. Notice the three characteristics here of our giving. It should be personal it should be volitional or voluntary, and it should be cheerful. You know, a pastor should never lay a guilt trip on his people or put a dollar figure on their giving. A believer should give, and I quote, 
as he purposes in his heart or as she purposes in her heart. We're under grace, not law. Be led by God's Spirit in your giving. Certainly, the tithe is a good principle, but it's not a law. We're not bound to the law. It's a matter of personal direction of the Holy Spirit. You working it out with God as you purpose in your heart before the Lord. That's how much you should give. A pastor should never pressure or manipulate folks to give. As if God needs their money or his purposes will fail if they don't give. That's never true. What's true is that you might miss out on a blessing. But trust me, God can supply whatever he needs to get done. And God wants us to be a cheerful giver. You know, the phrase could literally be translated a hilarious giver. God wants us to give with a smile, with a little laugh. When a believer begins to understand how much God has given to him or her, then they'll look for ways to give back to him. Giving will become a joy and a blessing. I found that pastors tend to use three different approaches when it comes to raising money. There's the flint. There's the sponge approach. And then there's the honeycomb. You know, flint has to be struck to get a spark. And some pastors, man, they browbeat their people to give. A sponge has to be squeezed. And other pastors are good at putting a squeeze on. They got all kinds of gimmicks to pressure you into giving. But a honeycomb just oozes. Its inner sweetness just sort of overflows. This is my approach. I want to help you cultivate an inner appreciation of God's grace and love and kindness towards you. So that your giving will just ooze out as a response to him. And then verse 8 tells us, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work. God is all sufficient. And if you trust Him, He'll be your sufficiency. He certainly can support His own work. As it is written, and he quotes here Psalm 112 verse 9, He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Paul prays for our harvest, but we're the ones that sow the seed. While we are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. The Gentiles' offering will not only meet the needs of the Jews in Jerusalem, it will cause their own hearts to rejoice. God always turns our physical offerings into spiritual blessings. And this should be the motivation behind our giving, not only to meet physical needs, but to glorify God. For he says in verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God 
in you. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem had prayed for the Gentile churches. Corinth's offering was proof of their growth in an answer to the Jerusalem church's prayer. And then finally, Paul concludes chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And how fitting that Paul wraps up his discussion on our giving by reminding us in the Corinthians of the greatest gift, God's indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. Have you received that gift? Have you received Jesus into your heart? I hope that you have. And if not, I hope you will today. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts. You know, through the Apostle Paul, through his letter to the Corinthians. Lord, I pray that we would take heed to your truths this morning, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would always approach you, not just with a worldly sorrow, but with a godly sorrow. Lord, with a sorrow that that seeks change, that seeks freedom, that seeks true forgiveness. Lord, help us to come with repentant hearts this morning. And Lord, help us to give back to you because of how you've been so generous and grateful, gracious toward us. Lord, I pray that you'll work in our hearts. Help us to, to seek to live a holy life, Lord. Lord, yes, we can please you with our offering, but even more than that, you want us. You want to make our hearts your living room. And so, Lord, help us to reserve our hearts and our lives for you. Lord, we thank you for loving us. And, Lord, we want to learn and grow. And we want to love you in return. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.